Please remain standing for the reading of the scripture. I'll be reading from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's word. Thank you, Sherry. We have been enjoying the uh, company of Carissa's mom, Sherry, and her grandmother, Ruth. So I thought I'd have her uh, read scripture for us this morning. They've been a wonderful help uh, in, I assume, enjoying their, their new granddaughter as well while they're here. Go ahead and uh, keep your your Bibles out to uh, Matthew chapter 2. There are no words to capture the range of emotions or to satisfy the honest questions and frustrations that well up in our hearts when we see uh, evil unleashed in one of its darkest forms, as we saw this past week. It's hard to think about the joy of Christmas in the face of that kind of blatant tragedy. Um, And yet, it's the message of Christmas that I think we need in times like this. The reminder that contrary to what it looks like in this world, God has not left us in darkness and decay. He has not left us in sin and rebellion, but he sent his son into the darkness, into the mess, to bring the light of God's glory to bear on it, to face that wickedness and sin, the pain and the tragedy and the tears of this fallen world, and to take all of that onto himself and so to deal with it and to bring hope and peace and new life. And so we need the message of Christmas. We need it. And the story that we have before us this morning is vintage Christmas. Uh, This narrative is the stuff of idyllic nativity scenes and epic Christmas plays. The, The hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, so much of what we think about this time of year comes out of this story this morning. But the challenge of reading this story uh, is to let the passage itself in front of us, Matthew 2, to let that shape our imagination and our understanding rather than the familiar imagery that we associate with it 
uh, from the nativity scenes or the Christmas songs that we sometimes sing. For instance, though we're very used to singing and speaking of three kings uh, or wise men, the story itself in Matthew 2 doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. Uh, we see in verse 11 that there were three gifts, and so I think that's where the number three comes from. But we don't know how many were involved, let alone their names, which were assigned or given to them somewhere in the 7th or 8th century. Moreover, there's nothing in this story to indicate that the foreign visitors were kings. Uh, Matthew uses the word magi to refer to them. Uh, Magi are a a priestly cast of magicians and astrologers uh, who were particularly wise in interpreting the stars. And so we get the language of wise men. The same word is used to describe the magicians, the Babylonian magicians in the book of Daniel, in that Greek translation of Daniel, and and the magicians in Acts 13. Uh, So, you know, the kingly description doesn't come from Matthew 2. Uh, it probably comes from the Old Testament background, some of the promises that these magi seem to fulfill in terms of kings coming and bringing their gifts of gold and incense. Uh, they were certainly wise and wealthy, but they weren't kings. And of course, you know, it's highly unlikely that they visited the baby Jesus in the stable as our nativity scenes depict. The shepherds certainly did, we, we read in Luke 2. But here in Matthew, the Magi seem to arrive much later, visiting the family in a house in Bethlehem, with Jesus being up to two years old by that time, according to verse 16. Now, I point all of these things out, not because I have something against nativity scenes. Um, We have one on our piano at home. It's a wonderful Christmas tradition. I point it out because my goal this morning is for us to hear this story afresh, to hear it the way Matthew told it. And so to get caught up in the significance of the story as we have it here in the scriptures. And the message that the one born king of the Jews deserves the worship of all nations. The one born king of the Jews deserves the worship of all nations. So let's pray and look at this passage together. Jesus, we long to hear a word from you this morning, a word of comfort, a word of hope, a word that shows us who you are and what you're doing in this broken world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly in your word and that you would change our hearts, Lord, to love you, to trust in you, to hope in you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just now joining us, uh, we've only been in the Gospel of Matthew for a couple of weeks now. Uh, We've seen so far in chapter 1 how the birth of Jesus signals the fulfillment of God's promises to ancient Israel. Uh, The Old Testament looked forward to the day when God was going to place a king on David's throne. And Matthew tells us in no uncertain terms that that king we've been waiting for is this man Jesus Christ. Moreover, we saw last week in chapter 1 that this king is both fully God and fully human. And so he is uniquely able to accomplish God's plan of salvation for the world. Only this king can deal decisively 
with our sin, with the sin of humanity and the brokenness of this world, and so establish God's kingdom on earth. So Jesus is the king that Israel's been waiting for. He's the king of heaven and earth. And what's interesting as we come to Matthew 2 is how the leaders of Israel at that time completely missed it. They missed his arrival. They find out about the birth of their long-awaited king from a bunch of foreign astrologers and magicians. You know, look with me at, uh, at verses 1 through 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So Matthew sets up his story uh, with some significant details. First, he specifies that Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, that's going to be important throughout the rest of this chapter. Um, second, he specifies that Jesus was born during the time of King Herod. That's an interesting detail. We might not have three kings of Orient visiting you know, here, but we do have two kings in this story. Herod and Jesus, which triggers a likely problem that's going to come about when these foreign visitors arrive, coming to Jerusalem, the city of the king, looking for the one who's born king of the Jews, and now Herod catches word that there's another king in town. So, Matthew sets up the details early on, but we have to ask a few questions about these magi, these wise men, who are they, what they were doing. And what brought them to Jerusalem in search of this king is is pretty unclear, to be honest. Uh, They tell us that they saw his star in the east, or when it rose, uh, and have come to worship him. And as ancient astrologers, uh, it shouldn't shock us that they were trying to find earthly significance in what they saw in the heavens. They were part of a worldview that believed, as one author described it, Everything was interconnected. And when something important was happening on earth, you could expect to see it reflected in the heavens. And alternatively, a remarkable event among the stars must mean they thought a remarkable event on earth. So so it shouldn't shock us that they're trying to read the stars in that kind of way, but what they actually saw has long been debated. And really, we're not sure. Uh, Some have suggested that it was maybe a convergence of the planets Jupiter Uh, And Saturn, Jupiter in ancient mythology has long been seen as the kingly planet. And Saturn among some in the ancient world was associated with the Jews. And so here we have the kingly planet, you know, uh, converging with the planet uh, that reflects the Jews. Maybe the king of the Jews has been born and so on. And that actual convergence of stars did happen three times in 7 BC. Uh, And so the timing is actually possible uh, it's about three years before King Herod died. Uh, just as a, a side point of interest, uh, the fellow who tried to anchor our modern calendar on the birth of Christ was actually off by three or four years. Uh, we know that King Herod died four years B.C., and we know Jesus was born just a few years before that. So um, the timing here is, is maybe possible, but there are also a lot of problems with that idea. Um, you know, for instance, the, the Magi describe what they saw as a star. 
not as a convergence of planets, and they probably would have known the difference. Um, moreover, it seems like whatever they saw was actually on the move in some way, as we read in verse 9. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So that's, that seems a little bit different than just something clear up in the sky. And so uh, several people have suggested what they saw was simply supernatural. God was doing something special in the heavens to guide them, not unlike the way he guided Israel with a pillar of fire in the wilderness, something supernatural and special in order to lead the way. So we don't know exactly what they saw. But I think perhaps the bigger question is, what in the world was God doing uh, by using a bunch of pagan stargazers to inform his people of the birth of their own king and his son? I mean, you look at the Old Testament and what it says about astrology and the kinds of things these magi were likely into, uh, it in no uncertain terms tells us that that was evil and wrong. Uh, Isaiah 47, for instance, God mocks uh, the people of Babylon in the east who were depending on astrologers and stargazers who make predictions month by month, but who cannot save their own people from the wrath of, of God. So... These are strange characters showing up in the Gospel of Matthew. We kind of scratch our heads wondering, what in the world are they doing here? And yet, this is not the first time that God has used a Gentile or a non-Jewish person in order to inform his people about his plans. Uh, think of Balaam uh, in the book of Numbers. You know, A foreigner hired by Moab in order to curse Israel who no doubt was involved in some of the uh, prohibited fortune-telling and sorcery methods uh, that, that God had said no to, and yet who, quite contrary to his own intention, ends up blessing Israel. So foreigner Balaam, no faith in God whatsoever, and yet he ends up blessing Israel and prophesying about her future king. Listen to what Balaam says in Numbers 24:17 about God's king. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, referring to God's coming king. So it's quite possible that Matthew wants us to make a connection between the foreigner Balaam who foretold the star and the foreign magi who saw it. Uh, both being unlikely Gentile witnesses of God's redemption. So, as, as one author points out, Matthew neither condemns nor sanctions astrology. Instead, his point here is to contrast the eagerness of the Magi to worship Jesus, who, despite their limited knowledge, to contrast that with the apathy of the Jewish leaders and the hostility of Herod's court all of whom had the scriptures to inform them. See that contrast going on there. In fact, we see several contrasts in how different people respond to the news that the king of the Jews has been born. So look with me at verses 3 through 6. When King Herod heard this news, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. 
When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So in those verses, we see three different responses to the announcement that the king of the Jews has been born. The first and dominant response is that of Herod with his anger and his hostility. And we're actually going to look more closely at Herod next week as we see how his anger unfolds through the rest of the chapter, uh, how that plays out. But what's immediately clear in these verses is that Herod receives this news as a threat to his own throne, a threat to his own throne, which in some ways is pretty understandable because Herod, uh, though he sits on the throne as king of the Jews, wasn't actually Jewish. He was Idumean. He was appointed the throne by the Roman emperor. And so now he hears of a, of a real king coming. One can understand the alarm. So he hears the report. He's furious. Uh, in verses 7 through 8, look at those with me. He, he takes steps to find this reported king so that he can take him out. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too can go and worship him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Herod pretends like he wants to go worship the king because he wants to go murder the king. He wants to take out the competition. But as we'll see next week, um, he's unable, when he's unable to locate him, he will instead take out every potential threat. And he will murder every male child ages two years and younger in the city of Bethlehem. Time magazine described Friday's shooting as the massacre of the innocents. That's ironic because that's the exact title that has long been used to describe what Herod did to Bethlehem. Again, there, there's no words to make sense of, the, of what happened. And no one's going to know for sure what motivated that kind of wickedness. But in it, we recognize the handiwork of an ancient foe. One who has long been trying to war against God and his kingdom in violent ways. And like Satan, who's working his evil through Herod, so Herod responds to the news of Jesus' birth with anger and with hostility. Because his own throne is at stake. And again, we're going to look further at that next week. But there are two other responses worth noting in these verses. The first is the alarm of the people of Jerusalem. Look again at verse 3. Herod was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now the question is, what was it that Jerusalem, that the city, the people were, were upset about? Did they share uh, Herod's sense that this king was a threat, or were they alarmed because Herod was alarmed 
and they had no clue what that tyrant would do. And I think the latter is almost certainly the case. Uh, Doug O'Donnell, a, a pastor and author, he summarizes what we learn from the Jewish historian Josephus about this Herod. How he slaughtered the last remnants of the dynasty which ruled before him, put to death half of the Sanhedrin, killed 300 court officials, executed his own wife and his mother-in-law and three of his own sons, and who, as he lay dying, arranged for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled in the Hippodrome and killed as soon as his own death was announced so that the people might weep instead of rejoice on the day of his death. That is the wickedness of this tyrant. It's incredible. And so if news spreads that someone like that is mad, I'd be alarmed too. But it's interesting that I think this alarm of the city is a subtle picture of how our fear of evil forces can so easily drown out the message of God's coming kingdom. Here is the greatest news that the world has been waiting for, and the city is so distracted by their fear of Herod that they miss it. And I think there's a, there's a message for us in that as well. You know, it, it's hard to believe that, that God is really going to do something that will make a difference in this broken world. Because we see, you know, something that's so, so common and normal as sending your child to school becomes an occasion of fear and, and, and terror. It's not the way this world's supposed to work. But we don't want that alarm, that fear, to drown out the message of hope and healing and peace that we have in Christ. That evil does not win in the end, but Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And so we have hope. So there's anger, there's alarm. And the third response we see in these verses is the surprising indifference of the Jewish religious leaders. The apathy. They just don't seem to care. These are the ones whom Herod has summoned together in order to figure out what city the promised Messiah is to be born in. So we have the chief priests and the scribes. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And they know the answer to Herod's question immediately. You know, you can... They probably don't even have to open their scrolls to find out. You can almost imagine them lined up game show style, you know, and Herod asks his question, where is the Messiah to be born? It's like, oh, Bethlehem, Micah, Micah, you know. They, they know the answer right off the bat. They get it right. And that's it. Nothing. They just kind of disappear, seem to go home. And when you think about that, it's incredible. It just, the way Matthew describes it, it feels like this cold indifference to what has just happened. Think about what they just said is coming true, though. If you look at Micah, in the book of Micah, the prophet is speaking against Israel's disobedience, against their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. He's warning them of judgment. 
But he's also promising them that God will deliver and restore his people. And he's going to do it through his promised king who's going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5 reads, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He, this king, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. That is a beautiful promise that speaks straight to the heart of everything that Israel was terrified of, everything that they longed for redemption from. And so here are Israel's religious leaders sitting under foreign oppression, serving a dictator king with news that God is finally raising up a ruler who's going to shepherd God's people and in the strength of the Lord and and bring forth a time of peace and security and no response, just an indifference. An indifference that frankly we too are are often tempted to feel. Uh, Especially at Christmas. You know, we hear these stories year after year. Uh, We watch the same Christmas specials over and over. It just becomes maybe this numb routine. Uh, Maybe some of us who've grown up in church, we, we know this story like the back of our hand. You know, we know God came down in Jesus to save us from our sins. We can get the answers right in the Bible quiz, all these kinds of things. And yet, we look at this with a blank stare as if to say, so what? We're not impressed. Um, And I wonder if it's because we don't realize how much we need a king like this. How broken and dark this world is. How broken and dark our own hearts before him are, and how much he's done for us to rescue us from that sin and darkness. We don't recognize, therefore, how truly worthy he is of our worship, of our hope, of our our faith. As a result, uh, O'Donnell says quite sharply, people pack the pews each Sunday, but live as if there's no king upon the throne but them. It's that picture of indifference. So anger, alarm, indifference. And then we have the response of the Magi, the foreigners who recognize what God's own people fail to see, whose response tells us that the one born king of the Jews deserves the worship of all nations, not just Israel. And so verse 9. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The contrast here is remarkable. Uh, you know, here we have the nations, you know, tr- who traverse afar over field and fountain, moor and mountain to, to find and worship the king of the Jews, of a, of a specific people group that's not even their own. While Jesus' own people seem to react with anger, alarm, and indifference. The nations recognize that what God has been telling his people all along is, is becoming true, but what God's been telling his people, but what they failed to see, that the, the king of the Jews is here. He is here and that in him, the whole world finds hope. And so they respond in worship. They bow before this king. They present him with costly gifts, gold and aromatic spices of frankincense and myrrh. From the perspective of these magi, these gifts were likely just costly gifts fitting for a king. But when we look at how these materials that they offered are used elsewhere in Scripture, you wonder if God didn't arrange the specific gifts in order to plant a few subtle seeds for where this is, the story is going. Not unlike the way you know, when you watch a movie the first time, there's all these details at the beginning that you don't notice until you watch it the second time and you see how he's been preparing the way all along. I wonder if something like that is happening with these gifts. Uh, for instance, we mentioned that gold is, is a kingly gift. And there's no surprise there. Jesus is on display as the king. But we see in Leviticus that frankincense is the kind of stuff that the priests used in the service of the temple, you know, in the presence of the Lord. And so some have suggested that this incense may be kind of a picture of God's presence with us through this child who is Emmanuel, as we saw last week, God with us. And then there's myrrh, which is another spice, and often presented as a gift to royalty, but one used specifically in John 19.39 for the embalming of Jesus' crucified body. And so again, possibly signaling that this king, who is God with us, is going to give his life for us. Now, it's highly unlikely that Mary or the Magi necessarily understood that significance. But what is clear here is that the visit of the Magi signaled that God's plan to rescue the whole world through his chosen people Israel is coming to fruition. It's coming to fruition. What God promised to do for Israel was never just for Israel. It always had all nations in the scope. Now, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham. He chose Abraham and promised him that through him and his descendants, all nations on earth would be blessed. In Isaiah 2, we see a picture of God's kingdom at the end of time and all nations streaming to Jerusalem. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3. 
There will come a time when men and women from every nation on earth will find their hope and give their allegiance to the King of Israel, who is the King of the world. Just as we heard earlier, the promises in Isaiah 60 during the Advent reading that, you know, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Similarly, in Psalm 72, we read that the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him, the king of Jerusalem. They'll bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. And so when we see these foreigners acting out Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60, our hearts ought to rejoice just as their hearts did. They were overjoyed at the sight because God is keeping his word. God is keeping his word. And that word includes an invitation to all nations, not just Israel, but to all nations, to come and find refuge and blessing in Israel's king. As Isaiah 45 says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is no other God to find refuge in. So here it begins, right here in Matthew 2. The nations bowing before King Jesus. And from Matthew 28, it'll move on. As King Jesus commissions his followers to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And we have confidence We have confidence that one day, as Paul tells us, every knee will in fact bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have hope as the Apostle John was able to peek into heaven and see where this story was going to end up. How a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All nations worshiping before the Lord Jesus. So the question that remains is what's your response? What's your response? Will we, like Herod, see Jesus and his kingdom as a threat? And so respond in anger, doing whatever it takes to preserve some semblance of being in control and having power over my own world, whatever the cost. Will we be like the city and allow ourselves to be distracted in worry and fear, so terrified of what evil might come that we miss God's announcement of grace and victory and hope and healing, the declaration that His Son is taking the throne and that all things will be made right? 
Will we be like the religious leaders, proud of our biblical knowledge, yet completely missing the point? And so living our lives unimpressed with God and rather impressed with ourselves. And as a result, walking miles away from what God is doing. Or will we follow the lead of these unsuspecting Gentiles who recognize that in the one born king of the Jews, we have the Lord of the whole world. The one who would again be called king of the Jews. Once more in the Gospel of Matthew at the end. From Gentile lips, no less. Only this time, when he's called king of the Jews, it won't be in in a, a rough cradle, but instead he'll be hanging from a rugged cross. And his crown will not be of gold, but of thorns. And there will be no lightness and brilliant light above. Instead, the entire earth is plunged into darkness as he takes his throne on the cross. And yet it's through that cross that our king shatters the powers of darkness and demonstrates his undying love and affection for all peoples. Here is the one who's able to take all the heartache, all the suffering, the evil, the violence, the tragedy, the anger, the arms that ache for a child they'll never hold again. Here is the one who takes all of that and folds it into his own suffering to deal with it on our behalf and to bring out of it new life, peace, and hope in the resurrection. This is our king. This is a king who gave his life for you, for me, for the entire world. Will we give him our worship in faith and in joy and response? Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, may we see you for who you are. May we bow in worship and joyful celebration. May the, the joy of our hearts not pretend like everything's okay in this world, but rather may that joy come from the recognition that you are greater than this world, that you have triumphed over this world, that, that we are safe and satisfied and secure in your arms and your arms alone. God, may we rejoice and give you the worship you deserve, the allegiance you deserve as your people. And may all nations come to know the glory and joy and hope there is in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.